0: Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest, the wonderful Gina Rosero, author of Horse Barbie.
1: Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet, and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit spotpet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com sample-policy. Spotpet insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company, and produce Spotpet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spotpet Insurance Services, LLC.
2: Hi,
0: it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the thread is about big questions. Why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow.
2: I believe, certainly I know now, after have going through these years and years of feeling ashamed of who I am, you know internalizing the shame here you know how america sees trans people gender in general and what i know now is truly this is the power i mean maybe many many years as a, as a fashion model definitely there were days when i feel like why did i even even just the thought of like being born as trans and all that like i love being a trans person right now especially right after that ted talk in 2014 when i realized oh, wow, I've opened up, the world opened up to me, you know, that's just just the beginning. It doesn't mean like I've, you know, all my problems disappear, but certainly there's a sense of freedom in that. So hopefully the freedom that, at least for me to start with, that I found within myself by speaking truth, by truly living authentically as myself, you know, it it gives me power. And I think people are afraid of that.
0: Gina Rosero is a model and advocate, known for her courageous journey of self-discovery and self-revelation. In 2014, she came out to the world as transgender on the stage at TED. Today, we discuss her debut memoir, Horse Barbie, where Gina bears her soul, relaying her journey as a pageant queen hailing from the Philippines. Courageously, she made the difficult decision to temporarily conceal her identity in order to pursue a career as a model in New York City, where not even her agent knew the truth. While she booked magazines and ad campaigns, deep within her, she recognized that embracing her authentic self was the key to unlocking her boundless potential. Gina's determination to live her truth serves as a testament to the transformative strength and self-acceptance and genuine self-empowerment. Besides telling her story, Gina also founded the advocacy and media production company, Gender Proud. Before we get to today's conversation, just a quick note that at the end of this episode, you can hear an excerpt from the audio version of On Our Best Behavior. So stick around if you're curious to hear what it's about. Okay, let's get to our conversation. Congratulations. And I know you've been sort of at this. You've been telling your story publicly for six years. Is that right? That you've, when you sort of came out?
2: Yeah, when I did my, t- that was 2014 when I did my test. So that's nine years.
0: Nine years. Holy shit,
2: Gina. Yeah. Holy shit. It's interesting. Obviously writing this book, a very, very different as you've read in the book in, in the context of, you know, I have to be honest, like when I did my TED Talk in 2014, I mean, talking about timing, and have no idea what that year, I mean, personally, for me, I wanted to do that, right? And I made the decision to share my story on my 30th birthday, and I'm entering my new decade as myself. That's 2013. And when I did my TED Talk, and then like months after that, that's when, you know, Time Magazine published a transgender tipping point. And we could go deeper into like that big question and sort of problem with that positioning. Yeah. But also, you know, between 2014 and at least when I came into the scene and did a lot of these things, there's a lot of respectability politics, you know, as in most things, right, when you are tasked as the representative as a, a, you know, from a marginalized community. I've been speaking my story, but through a very particular lens, you know. Yeah. So writing this book is definitely as as what most people would say, it's complete unapologetic in all its essence. So
0: <laughs> Yeah. I thought it was so illuminating and in a way I was sort of ashamed at how little I know about like I learned so much from you. Thank you. Like your the way that you talk about sex so openly and your Maserati of vaginas. <laughs> and, you know, that was really eye-opening to me. I hadn't – I might be sexually naive, but, like, I didn't know, for example, that that it is so indes- – it's essentially the exact same. No one would know unless you out yourself. I always – I just had no – And and it's embarrassing to admit that, but I just had no idea that absent – menstruation and a womb. Although I imagine at some point, we'll be able to do that as well, right?
2: I mean, th- things have been, <laughs> there's been a lot <laughs> of innovations in the world, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, sharing that part of even that component, right? I mean, even when I do interviews about and we're speaking about that because there's a big preoccupation in just speaking about it from a complete sensationalist approach you know mm-hmm. i when i wrote this book and i when i made the choice to speak about that i was really coming from a very you know sort of, in a way spirituality tied into that and how i felt mm-hmm. so aligned once i've, I've done that yes I got the Maserati, you know, and, and that's great. <laughs> and that's also great, you know, and that's sort of the long kept secret within the community. And it still is in, in, in so many ways. And it helped me in so many ways, you know? Yeah.
0: Well, it's what what I thought was so beautiful about it really was your attachment to pleasure and your such a clearly articulated sex drive as completely apart from gender and how important pleasure was to you. And the fact that that is still available and a through line was amazing. I assume that that was lost and maybe that's really, and I know it's actually a lot of other trans women thought that that was a sacrifice that they would have to make.
2: Is that accurate? Absolutely, in many ways, just like in, So many things, particularly in in the culture. And I'm speaking about, and we would straddle between, you know, Philippine, what Eastern context to American context, because I think, you know, I've I've lived half of my life in the Philippines, half here in the U.S. So, you know, it's quite a perspective, you know, of of different culture, different context, different nuances. But through the lens of, let's say, American culture western context the understanding of that is again the tendency of because that's considered outside the norm let's not go and sort of share so much information about it right in, in, mm-hmm. that, in that context so that's why we didn't have access to it full access to it but also in the context of the innovation at the time certainly was not as much available. So there's all that confluence of, of of those factors. Thank God, through trust within the community, I was able to access, you know, not online, not, you know, obviously no social media at the time. It's pure intra-community aspect of like, okay, let me ask you about that experience. Mm-hmm. But without the context of like, Oh, I'm I'm just objectifying you because I'm just asking about that. Because, you know, that that conversation that me and another trans Filipina particularly in in wanting to find out information as openly as possible, it's it's through love. It's through knowing the long history of misinformation, the long history of of not being able to access it's particularly yeah. pleasure. You know, that was the big question. So
0: Yeah. And I thought it was, you know, really beautifully told and very powerful to know that that is certainly not lost. And if anything, you know, as you came deeper into your body, that that was that you were really and completely in a full expression of yourself. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really, I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends, where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge, to have them framed right. I've been having FrameBridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints and they do a beautiful and speedy job making them the perfect place for holiday gifts as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do and they confirm this for me. But FrameBridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20 plus Framebridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why Framebridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local Framebridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. Let's talk about your childhood, which was amazing. I mean, you talk about sort of the lack of gender pronouns in the Philippines, the fact that this is just a known, a very visible, celebrated, if not, if still deprecated, right? And there's still a lot of hate. It's not like it's a a sort of trans-forward community, but it is in some ways. Like you were fully out as a child. You were very visibly trans, a very visibly a, a woman, a girl.
2: Can you talk uh-huh. a bit about that yeah. cultural experience? You know, when I, when I decided that I'm going to, you know, write this book, certainly I know I've lived a cinematic life, you know, just in the context of putting trans pageants within a very Catholic, conservative culture, mm-hmm. the pageantry of it all in itself. Obviously that's my experience. So in the Philippines, you know, when they share those things, specifically, we have a long history of gender fluidity in our culture. In our it's in our language, it's very much documented. Trans people, as in many cultures around the world, pre colonial cultures, indigenous cultures, the understanding of gender has never been truly a, a binary way of looking at things. Yeah. It's 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 really about the Abrahamic religions that introduce a big part of that, which is a, also a big part of colonization, right? So yes. we've had that culture of gender fluidity in our culture, both from language, the the position that non gender non conformist people play in society has a very specific, powerful role. In the Philippines, we have, again, there were so many dialects and. They're usually the advisors to the local queens and, and and kings or the spiritual leaders or someone who's believed to have access to the divine. Right? That's that's yeah. a role. So in the Philippine context, so imagine when 1521 Ferdinand, Ferdinand Magellan got to the Philippines, does the introduction of you know Catholicism, Christianity, and, yeah. and 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 but also as a tool of colonization, but to be perfectly honest, brainwashing, and they saw that trans people are the spiritual leaders, you can just imagine what the priests did. You just imagine the system of, as a tool for colonization did towards, how do we get rid of that? How do we completely erase as much of that? So with you have that context, right? And then obviously for 333 years, we were a colony of Spain. That's the introduction of the Fiesta celebration, the, the introduction of Christian calendar, right, the, the the celebration of all that. And then in 1898, we were bought for, Philippines was purchased for 20 million by United States from Spain. Thus, again, entered this new influence. And for 50 years, we were an American colony. And then the early 1900s, does the introduction of beauty pageant, like the concept of a beauty pageant on stage was introduced in the Philippines. So you have that confluence of those forces and to what it is now, That is why we have this very vibrant trans beauty pageant culture, meaning usually when we have to celebrate a particular saint or honor a patron, like for example, downtown Manhattan, we're celebrating the Fiesta of St. Peter, right? And usually that's a five-day celebration. And usually on that fifth day as the main celebration that usually falls on the Sunday, the main event is a transgender beauty pageant. And usually that's like on the street, the stage is being built. And most of the time, it's right in front of the church, right? The whole family's watching it. So when they say these things, people, oh, you mean it's accepted? It's tolerated, mm-hmm. you know? It's still seen as an entertainment for us. Mm-hmm. It's again the the you know all the different and from a storytelling co- component. Like there, there's which who's who's looking at what where's the gaze coming from? Like for me at least, it was my way of to make money because it's such a system. There were so many, actually this month, this month of May, it's actually peak Catholic trans fiesta extravaganza because there's almost trans passages almost every day throughout the Philippines right now because it's also peak fiesta Catholic tradition in the Philippines right now, the whole month of May. So yeah, when I say that, I like to offer that nuance, which is, as I mentioned in, in the book and in many ways, trans people are culturally visible like mainstream visible, but we're not politically recognized. There are no rights for trans people. We can't change name and gender marker. There's a comprehensive anti-discrimination. There's still, to this day, majority of affirming carers are still DIY. It's still through community. Yeah, there's some changes, but still very much DIY.
0: And that's where you're accessing hormones sort of through a network and you're not under the care of a doctor, et cetera.
2: There are some, like, initiatives that have popped out, but not as a system as part of, you know, the introduction of this is how you actually do it. There's some, you know, testing programs in the hospital, but not like I said, this is 105 million population in the Philippines, you know, and in the community that, you know, or organizations that I'm still in touch with, I work with, they were like, we're barely like a dozen organization, medical organization that supports, you know as the system comprehensive approach to this in a a population of 105 million people.
0: Yeah. I want to come back to sort of the spiritual shamanic component of this, but we'll put that in a parking lot for now. Because then you follow your mom. That was sort of, that was heartbreaking that your mom had to go first. I'm glad you guys are on, I'm assuming on opposite coast still, but on the same continent again. But then you sort of, you enter a, a sort of parallel, reversed universe, right? Where you are able on your identity card to say that you're female in the United States and nobody clocks you, to use your language, as trans, right? So you're back in the closet and recognizing okay, how let's unsafe. Su- let's, let's use the term Wabuking. I want you to say it.
2: Wabuking. 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 Yeah, I'm Wabba I am unclockable, darling. You Wabba know? King.
0: Unclockable. So yeah, so there's <laughs> no, this isn't, you know, that was fascinating how you talk about being at home in the Philippines and everyone, you're not Wabba King at all. Everyone recognizes you as trans and then you go to the United States and you are Wabba King. Nobody knows, which is really interesting cultural commentary, particularly at that time, right? This is 2000-ish, and sort of back, in the, clo- back or in the closet for the first time. You had never really been in a closet,
2: right? No, it's, yeah. So when I moved to America, first California, right? San Francisco area. I, and specifically, I moved there because I'm able, that's what my mom told me, that I'm able to be recognized as a woman here in my legal documents. And mm-hmm. when she's, because I was, I had a different, trajectory i thought i was gonna be in, in japan and continue that life because that's what you know what many trans people did but my mom said that to me so i was like i'm moving to america but when i moved here i experienced the reverse it's politically recognized right on on documents and and access to certain care but there's no glamour there's no cultural visibility i was like where is the trans beauty pageants like the way that we have it in mm-hmm. Philippines. so it was a, an it was a reverse as a seventeen year old, the cultural shock of what do I do? And the first representation that I saw on television, you know, trans people was Jerry Springer as a as a TV show. Mm. And it's a particularly poignant i'm I'm sharing all this, you know, he recently passed and uh, respect as as well, you know, of a person, but also uh, there's this other side, you know. For so long, that show and the ethos of that show represented, in in, in a way, I'd say, encapsulates American understanding of gender, American understanding of like what, what are the types of people, lived experience, and identities that the should be ashamed of, and at the time, definitely we were we were the target. Still is the target, but certainly at the time was like, that's the only thing that I saw and then completely affected the way I saw and the way I felt, you know, about who I am. I mean, shame definitely even more so sunk sunk something deeper into who I could become. You know, I mean, in hindsight, I definitely now know that this country that promised me, you know, freedom to be who I am, there are conditions. Freedom... To not be fully, fully yourself, you know, freedom at a point that uh, we can only tolerate, you know. So, yeah, I've, I've forgotten that horse Barbie on on stage, that spirit, that power, that, that essence and, and that beauty and that sort of magic that I, that I had as, you know, the most prominent trans beauty queen at 15 to 17, the diva. I lost that and I've forgotten about it. Until you know when I decided that I'm really going to move to New York City and pursue this. After many many years, I you know I had to listen to that voice again of you know, as an artist as a performer to do it, and I had to move to New York City.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about your New York City sort of life and career, but before that, for people who don't remember, sort of the Moripovich Jerry Springer. Roadshow, those talk shows. I don't know how I remember these. So it had to have been with some frequency this exposure of a man typically learning that his girlfriend was, it wasn't even trans. It was, oh, your girlfriend's a, a man, right? And then the sort of quote unquote shock horror of the revelation, the crowd going wild. I mean, this was common. This was a frequent, I don't know how often they did it, but it was up there with sort of the other transgressive sins, like your boyfriend or girlfriend has another family or, you know, whatever it is that they was their whole shtick, which was the one of the most powerful for Geraldo. Like those were crack for our culture. And it's really sort of the fear that this stokes, right? Because when you're in the Philippines and you're clocked or mawa Mava, Uh, Wabuking. Wabuking, but not Wabuking. Yeah,
2: yeah,
0: yeah. Booking. booking, (laughs) The opposite. And you're in sort of in your sexual self, and you're hooking up with people. It's all known. But in America, you're plagued by this, like, this incredible fear component and what happens and continues to happen to trans women, in particular in our country, being murdered. But this, like, if you... The fact that men are so uncomfortable with their... Sexuality, or this culture is so uncomfortable with sexuality, right? And that if someone, and clearly you're gorgeous, that that becomes a weapon that's used against you for people who are scared of the possibility that they really want to have sex with you, right? I mean, it's such a terrifying, it's already scary to be a woman. And then it's sort of an extra level of weaponization against you i don't know it had to have been really traumatic gina
2: it was you know i mean yeah. You know, this country is founded in puritanical belief so anything yeah. outside again outside of what was considered upholding this story this narrative of who are allowed to be fully as themselves which i think yeah. we now we have better language i mean now we could say that it's this heteronormative white patriarchal identity, right? If it goes outside that, shame, 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 shame. Be ashamed. That's something to be ashamed. Let's completely like not even acknowledge it. Through that, it's all these things that we're talking about. Yeah, I've, I've lived that life. When I was writing this book, when I was beginning to tackle what this, how I'm even going to approach this, I knew. I wanted to start at the, I think I thought that was the most traumatic and most difficult and most complicated, which is my time as a fashion model in New York City. Mm-hmm. But some would easily think that like, what do you mean traumatic? You're a fashion model. You've, you're doing all this and the external way of looking things, you know, it's all the barometer of success, right? I mean, I was doing it. But then I also had this other multiple, multiverse, dual reality, paranoia Always editing what I needed to say. Always be vigilant. All of those things holding it together. This book was a process to to unpack, you know, a little bit more of that because I I felt like I, I didn't even even after the TED talk I just I went from hiding stealth to mm-hmm. that that force of of. Of wanting to speak truth into existence and find my way into being known as truly as I am, I went from being stealth to completely unapologetic trans. So writing this book, Horse Barbie, was to to find that through line, What happened? Why yeah. I made that decision? You know? so
0: yeah. to go back through all that. and it's it's, you know, amazing. And, and I can imagine, I mean, you write about this beautifully, but this feeling at a shoot of, are they clocking me, right? Am I about to be sort of, I'm the face of Rimmel. Am I going to be exposed? And, you know, you write about it too in this age before social media, the transpansions are not on YouTube. There's your family's in the closet too, right? They're, they don't want to tell anyone where you are or what you're doing, for fear of exposure, which is, I mean, it, it, I can, I can only imagine as you said, hypervigilance and the neuroticism that comes from living that life, and and hopefully we're in a better place. I mean, are we in? A, do you feel like we're in a better place now? I mean, oh girl, what do you think? <laughs> I know we're banning drag shows, we're saying, don't say gay. I mean, it feels like we're going forwards and backwards simultaneously. But do you think that a majority of culture is?
2: I think think for marginalized folks, you know, we've always known what you just said there about like swinging back and forth and all that. That's been in my head, you know, since I was modeling, right, since 2005, which is swinging, like, where do I fit in? Why do I do it? Yes, we have those windows of, of hope and moments and culture. But for most marginalized, we've always been doing this. You know, we've always been, yeah. like, trying to find our way around a system that's not built for, obviously, not us, not someone of my yeah. skin color, not of my experience. Again, not to take lightly of, like, the, some of the progress and, and obviously, the hope that, that it gave me why I moved here. Is it better? Certainly... I don't know. It, it's it's tough. I, I, I get asked this question all the time. And there's uh, not in podcast. I think in podcast, I, I love because you really get to really expand on things. But when you're, you know, asked for like the quick sound bites, mm-hmm. there's a tendency of just, just comment on, on the freaking statistics. And I, I'd like to say, I try to reject that in as much, you know, cause I'm as also someone who's, who's you know, in a way, also became a little bit of like a policy wonk, you know, to really understand what I'm advocating for. I know the power of statistics, but I know the life-affirming power of seeing the humanity behind those numbers, behind those statistics, right? And that's, yeah. when I'm speaking about this, I just want to honor the lived experience, the lived experience, mm-hmm. particularly the most vulnerable trans youth, trans youth of color yeah. and on all those contexts. So I want to honor them in the sense that, yes, it, it is tough and it's difficult if I could offer one thing, at least for me and my experience and, and where I'm from and, and and the culture that I grew up with. It is really the power of community, you know, and that, mm-hmm. I'm not speaking about community like you have to sign up for a membership community, you know, I'm, or you have to pay for a membership community. I'm not speaking about that because it's also, you know, rooted from my lived experience is that Philippines is a communal culture you know when I moved here and the whole idea of like you are an individual and everything revolves around you it was like what you know I that was the the craziest thing that I experienced and obviously affected the way I I I viewed myself and the viewed my immediate world You know, in in the Philippines, you don't exist as an individual. You're always a reflection of your community. We have this virtue called kapwa, which is really this virtue kapwa is all about, and that's embedded in in Filipino culture, embedded in, you know, Southeast Asian culture, majority of culture that's non-Western, is that this virtue, particularly called kapwa, is basically what it means. It's like your inner self always shared with others,
0: Mm, you know? Beautiful. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about ChiliPad by SleepMe? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally Visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code THREAD. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep. S L E E P dot me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. So, trans is such an interesting word, right? And it means within it, its transition, right? That, but it's in some ways should be transcend, I think.
2: It should be some something powerful, something beautiful, something like all-encompassing form of yeah. evolution of some sort, right? Yes. yeah, but we, because again, we come down to how it's seen. So.
0: <laughs> how it's seen. But it's, you know, to me, it's and and I'm very curious for your thoughts, and feel free to say that you very much disagree, but it feels like the contemporary, I'll call it transcendent movement. This idea that we all are equipped with masculine and feminine energy. And I would define sort of the core masculine as structure, order, truth, core feminine as creativity, nurturance, and care. These energies are available to each of us. They have nothing to do with gender, although we're conditioned, particularly in a Western world, to say if you're female, you must be caring, you must be in your feminine although most women are definitely in both, much more easily, I think, than many men. And we're being called to recognize sort of this next stage of evolution. There's your sexuality. You know, we're sort of maybe starting to clock like sexuality and gender, not the same thing. And now what I would love to see is gender and masculinity and femininity, not the same thing curious about your thoughts on that as someone who is transcendent, but as someone who also comes from a culture where you're, has more gender fluidity, has more, do you, have you experienced that? Or do you feel like in the Philippines, there's still that binary
2: as well? In the Philippines, especially how I grew up, we grew up a very, very colonial mindset. You know, obviously the, the religion influenced the American language influence, you know, our systems of government is based from, you know, when we were a colony of America, still very much operates like that. So you have that factor, right? So in so many ways, depending on where you are, or obviously the the concept of of access and class to actual literature that honors our pre-colonial identities, you won't be able to easily access that. Certainly, it didn't. I didn't realize this quickly. You know, I had to leave yeah. my birth country, Philippines, for me to know this. Mm-hmm. And it, is it an advantage or disadvantage? I don't know. But certainly, that's what happened. I had to leave my motherland in order for me to truly understand it. But given with what I know now and what I know, some of the through line of that, looking back to how I grew up, even just the whole concept, I know we talked about earlier a little bit on the gender binary and uh, pronoun, like every, I think it kind of encapsulates this because certainly I experienced this, I still experience this, I still say it. A Filipino who's born and raised in the Philippines, when you move to America or like when you speak English, I could easily call you he, she, you know, not Mm -hmm. because it's an intention because I just don't know how to put things in binary. Every yeah. Filipino who moves to America calls you hishi. I still, give me a couple of tequilas, girl, I would be like Hishiing everybody, you know? Still, when I speak in Tagalog with my family, obviously we don't have gender neutral. We have the word called sia, and it's like for everybody. It's inclusive of everything. But when you speak English, it's very binary. So even that, so that that's a encapsulation of that experience. And I think one way to to look at this current cultural climate that we're seeing right now, and yes, I want to honor, as I mentioned, the, the lived experience of, of the people that are being attacked. Is, you know, and 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 make sure people are safe. Make make sure people have that emotional, psychological, mental support. But at the same time, you know, finding that how that young trans person hopefully to access still to be able to dream and and do things that they're truly passionate about like those are the things that are like i think the most immediate thing that that i i would like to acknowledge and hopefully people have access and figure out ways to do that but i think the deeper aspect here is that if we're speaking about the people that are specifically doing this particularly the really conservative right doing this which is how do we harness as much power by minimizing other people's power? It is truly because I think trans people and gender non-conforming people has that power. And there's too afraid of that power that they've been for so long, anybody that 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 sees gender as this very rigid binary. Anything outside of that story that you've been told and you've been led to believe is that immediate almost like fight or flight situation that like I will Kind I will minimize that. I will squash that. I will prevent that by, you know, creating these systems of loss so that they could stay there. You know, mm-hmm. that's what I believe. I believe, certainly I know now after have g- going through this years and years of feeling ashamed of who I am, you know, internalizing the shame here, you know, how America sees trans people, gender in general and what i know now is truly this is the power i mean maybe many many years as a a fashion model definitely there were days when i feel like why did i even even just the thought of like being born as trans and all that like i love being a trans person right now Mm -hmm. especially right after that ted talk in 2014 when i realized oh wow i've opened up the world opened up to me you know, this just a beginning. It doesn't mean like I've, you know, all my problems disappear, but certainly there's, there's a sense of freedom in that. So hopefully the freedom that, at least for me to start with, that I found within myself by speaking truth, by truly living authentically as myself, you know, it, it, it gives some power. Yeah. And I think people are afraid of that.
0: Now, listening to you, I mean, I remember sort of living through my older brother's gay and living through his coming out at a time of a lot of extreme homophobia, dangerous homophobia in this country too. And recognizing primarily in the people who were extremely homophobic, oh, it's because you're, you are a little gay and you're scared of this in yourself. Like you, you meet at the time, particularly you would meet some of these hardcore right wing or or be in their presence and be like, oh, you're this is all, you know, a self, this is an a mechanism of hating yourself. This is fear of yourself that you are projecting onto other people. And hearing you talk about that too, sort of the the loss of power. But I also feel like so much of it is that, you know, I think probably everyone is a little trans, right? And for a lot of people, recognizing that in themselves is is difficult, right? Or scary to be like, oh, I I do feel my feminine or "I, I personally have always very much felt my masculine. You know, I was a major tomboy. I never felt like I had been, I was really a boy, but I definitely was very conscious of, I am not a girl in this way, right? So curious about that. Like, do you feel living sort of within a fluid world? Obviously we're all arranged on the spectrum right? And how much of that is born out of that fear of their own attraction or their own fascination or their own tendency or feeling that they are not this masculine male, you know, 100%. It's very, yeah.
2: Speaking again in the American context of always wanting to put things in a box, stay there in a box, Diagnose it in a, in a sense, even. And I remember this conversation with our mutual friend, our dear dear mutual friend Jennifer Widow Walsh. Mm. I remember one of our early conversation with her, and I remember she's she mentioned to me that, you know, I've never seen it in that way in that context. And this is many many years ago, obviously. That yeah, it's all about the spectrum. It's about why would we not allow people to have choices on that spectrum of choice and beauty and, and, and freedom, you know? And I think mm-hmm. that's what it's about. You know, we're not saying, I certainly am not saying that like, you will never have gender or like complete d- disillusionment of like, oh my God, there's no more rules. It's just about having the freedom. Freedom, if you wanna stay in this, whatever in your expression, And maybe the next day you want to be in this moment. And maybe you're just swinging back and forth and having fun and dancing around and having the best time. Or maybe you really are just staying here. But because Mm -hmm. you're just staying here, you should not not allow these people that's dancing around to have a good time. You know, maybe you're seeing them have a good time. Maybe you'll join them and have a good time, you know, in that context. That's how I see it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. It is such a strange the things that we pay attention to or where we send our attention tells us a lot about ourselves. And it is wild to me that, that this is so concerning when it is so nobody's business and not harmful and, and a beautiful celebration.
2: Yeah. I I think it's, it doesn't become like, if you're in the business of finding your own freedom and I think, maybe even just saying that or, or or bringing that up brings about someone who's not worked through their thing. You know, you and I know we go through so much trauma and like unpacking that and how you unpack that so that you don't transfer that trauma. So you don't project that even more. So I think I'm in the business of people finding their own freedom and freedom in, in like truly this thing that I've been told that, this culture and country should be right and this is this is the narrative that's been sold to us especially as someone who's you know a a culture that was bought and sold for 20 million dollars and was influenced and like characterized as the savages in that culture let's let's make them civilized you know here i am writing this book horse barbie right tracing my story tracing my life story tracing my own history my own process in that and I know it gave me freedom and be what it is to how people see it. But certainly for me, in speaking as who's gone through all this, who's gone through this global saga of of the changes and, and of my experiences, I
1: wanted to speak truth. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what?
0: in Filipina culture, certainly in a lot of indigenous cultures, the third sex or this this idea of trans people being spiritual leaders, shamans. I mean, I would imagine it's because they can contain they they contain the binary, right? Like they contain. I'm looking for it, but I feel like at some point, even Jesus, who I would say is distinct from Catholicism and Christianity feel like he said he had a feminine he was born with a feminine soul and he represented in his own body sort of the the duality the experience of both simultaneously have you sort of because I feel like in the book you write about that revelation not not with surprise but have you gone sort of deeper into that more indigenous understanding cultural understanding of of what that means
2: yeah Through my own study through many communities of of filipinos that are decolonizing their mind right Mm -hmm. and in decolonizing in whatever aspect whether it's reading books whether it's you know reading more literature to sharing it to people to advocacy work through i mean for me i have a tattoo here i mean this this is a pre-colonial script in the philippines but this tattoo this character represented Lakapati is so a four, you know, character. Lakapati is a trans considered gender fluid goddess of fertility, mm. of golden rice. You know, like people pray in, in the Philippines to Lakapati so that the harvest for next season will give them abundance. You know, knowledge of that, knowledge of getting a hand tap tattoo, you know, from a cultural mm. worker, you know those are my practice those are when i'm speaking about this and even through that i'm sharing from my own journey i think in some even some parts of the books like i've gone through like almost this adventure way of like finding it right in that sense unexpected not coming to it from a preacher sense like did you know you know i mean i would love to but i think i i i want to live it by example you know how much freedom it gave me to unpack all of that, you know, because the colonial mind of, 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 of someone who is made to feel ashamed about what's been embedded in, in my blood, in our blood, in our culture, in our language, in our belief system, in our the way we, we relate to each other in our community. If that's not being unearthed, you know, we're missing something you know because it's so for me at least it's very grounding you know when now that I know that I can't help but always think that I'm rooted from really that you know a lot of when I'm feeling down when I'm feeling you know even like giving thoughts and advice to a young trans person I share those part of who I am truly from all Mm. let me take you 1521 or before 1521 darling you know so and share that because it's so, lo- I mean, yes, in, even here, here in, in America, right? I mean, like, yes, we, we speak about Stonewall as that's a history. It is. It's very much so. But even in this country, right, we have the Native American culture that have long understood this. So when I say it's really historical and it's it's really been here, it's that's not just, you know, I think to say, oh, we've been here around like we literally have been around.
0: Mhm. I know you've been carrying this torch for a decade, right? Almost a decade since your your TED Talk which was, you know, an opportunity to be yourself fully in the world. And now Horse Barbie is out. At a point, is there a point when you are when you want to pass the baton and say, "I know this has been sort of the primary part of my identity but now I'm ready for like the next part of my life where I, this isn't the the organizing principle of mm-hmm. everything
2: I'd say this I have asked that question quite long ago and it's been many many years since sort of I think living my life fully is the mm-hmm. the best advocacy successfully in my own terms is the best advocacy one I'd like to consider for you know for myself. But certainly right after that TED talk, I, I launched an advocacy campaign. I traveled the world. I worked, you know, at the UN, I worked with President Obama's State Department, like traveling in those places to speak about this, to put a to put a face on on the policy and the experience, right? And after a few years of doing that, I got really exhausted mm-hmm. spiritually because I felt like I've entered a different trap. You know, I left a trap of being stealth right where nobody knows I was, I was trans in the industry specifically or you know, obviously my my line of work but then I entered this thing of advocacy and if, at least in that level of you know as usually the only trans person in the room the burden of representation right mm-hmm. I think I asked I joke about it now but certainly I think let's just say because I think it kind of encapsulates it like but like I had my Angelina Jolie moment you know from modeling to like I'm speaking at the United Nations, and I did right and I did that <laughs> <And> to like <laughs> two years of doing that I was like I cannot do this I'm gonna be like I'm an artist I want to I want to tell more stories I'm gonna have a production company let me be like Tyra Banks and start a production company and I did that you know and I think that question that you asked me about like even the thought of passing the baton it's more like How do I create pipeline or or when I realized after two years of, you know, traveling the world and advocacy and and doing all that, what was missing is the hunger, the deep hunger as as an artist and a storyteller, that there are more stories that need to be shared, that the statistics and data could only do so much you know, mm-hmm. and how do I, I think, and that big question that I had when I launched Gender Proud Production with my co-founder, my friend Ali Hoffman was like, how do we tell stories through that lens, but fully from your perspective, you know, from a trans perspective, because you and I know in storytelling, it's always who's telling the story, you know, that gets yeah. put out there. So to go back to you know, the core what you're saying is, how do I, how do I just create pipeline? Like in, as a, now, as an executive producer in most projects that, that that I'm a part of, I have a voice to say this is this is how we're going to do this, and can we hire you know people that that truly represents what the stories that we're trying to say? And I was I was a witness to the power of that many many times. So that's what I'm about. Not necessarily like how do I pass the button, but really how do I bring people with me? Because I think the the bigger questions of th- being the only one in the room maybe when I wasn't conscious of it yet, you know, I was and I think maybe this this is sort of like a scarcity mentality of like, I wanna be the only one, you know, and be that, you know, that ego based, achievement based, individualist base, you know. I think I I came to realize like, I'm the only one, there's there's a problem here, you know. And the next yeah. question is like, how do I keep that door open and bring everybody with me? You know?
0: I like that shift that you mentioned too of sort of like Being the lens, the lens of Gina and your own specific perspective rather than being always needing to be the thing where the most, quote unquote, interesting thing about you is trans and sort of shifting that from like, actually, no, let's just I'm going to be sort of the not the gauze, but the sort of like this is I'm going to bring you into a whole world of experiences that are just different and interesting experiences that to me feels like a shift that a lot of people in social justice work are hungry for like no let's just change the camera to a wider aperture and a different lens and not make this the thing only i don't know if i said that well
2: no it's uh you do that by completely giving people that control to take over that yeah. that that lens Not because that's an all-be-all, but there's power through if it's seeing through that lens, because it's never been through that lens, you know?
0: Yeah. But I think it's, and I think it's powerful too, because I think it's, I think you are, again, going to this idea of transcendent. I think you're offering us a vision of the future and what it would look like for everyone to be a bit more free in who they are and... So it's not so much like here's a corollary experience over there, but here's actually the next experience.
2: I mean, I grew up, again, from a very, very different culture in the Philippines, America. That's a lot there. Yeah. (laughs) Through my lens, that's a lot to unpack, you know. (laughs) Well,
0: Gina Rosero is a delight, and her new memoir, Horse Barbie, is an important read. And she is an incredibly generous storyteller as she explains the really full experience of who she is. I found it incredibly eye-opening and illuminating and honestly a celebration of her body, her pleasure, her sexuality in a way that's honestly quite rare. I can't wait to see what Gina continues to do in the world, particularly as, as we were talking about at the end, the aperture starts to shift and we see the world filtered through different lenses rather than people of different experiences and ideas being the subject, the, the sort of object really of our fascination. But to see us move to the next step, where instead of looking at Gina and trying to understand Gina, we can actually see the world through Gina's eyes. And that's something I'm really excited for, because I think it indicates as difficult and horrible as this process has been and as far as we still need to go and as much hatred is still on display, I don't believe that it represents the soul of most Americans and I feel like we are pushing past these binaries to get to the next stage of evolution really that it is transcendent not transition and through that we'll find more freedom more allowance more understanding of ourselves and each other and a clarity about who we've been and who we are and who we will continue to be. Thanks for listening. And now, here's a little preview of the audio of On Our Best Behavior, available wherever you get your audiobooks. The whole thing is read by me. In late 2019, I hyperventilated for an entire month. I could not take a deep, complete breath without yawning, because, ironically... My lungs were oversaturated with oxygen. Hyperventilation is a classic mix-up between the body and the brain that I had been experiencing on and off since I was in my 20s. The first time it happened, I went to the emergency room thinking I had hours to live before I asphyxiated and that I needed to be intubated, stat. The doctor advised me it was all in my head and sent me home with a pat on the back and a Xanax prescription. This recent spell was different. I couldn't nap it away. Cutting out caffeine offered no relief. I struggled and suffered, yawning and sighing through meetings, interviews and meals. It's a strange experience to appear to the world as calm and sedate, sleepy really, while contending inside with consuming anxiety. I felt a bit like a duck, paddling frantically beneath the surface while appearing to glide with little effort on top. I sat in my therapist's office that month, in exhausted tears. I feel like I can't breathe, I said. I know, he answered. It's like I'm suffocating, like I've been buried alive. Where is it in your body? It feels, I said, as if something is sitting on my chest, and no matter what I do, I can't get it off that sounds really scary. We sat quietly. I'm just so tired. I don't understand. I try to do it all right, to be perfect, to be everything for everyone. I paused to breathe before rushing out. Why isn't that enough to give me some space? What more can I do to push this thing away? I stopped, then asked, do you know what it is? I don't, he offered but I understand why you feel urgency to figure it out. Is it the weight of my unreasonable expectations? I asked. Am I putting too much pressure on myself? Neither of those statements feel true to me, but you know me well. He looked at me. I think you are trying to live up to some sort of saintly ideal, yes, but I think it's deeper, that if you feel like you're good enough, you'll be safe from judgment, loved. This observation hit right in my clenched heart. So what is sitting on my chest exactly? I asked. Whatever tells you that you're not. After our session, I sat in my car, head resting on the steering wheel. I could feel something primal and angry, something rebellious and pissed, break free. I was trying to be good. I had always been trying to be good. I ran myself ragged, Cared dutifully for my family, friends, and colleagues, punish my body so that it stayed a certain size, kept my temper in check? What would happen if I just stopped? I didn't know the answer, but in my parked car that day, I resolved to find out. I planted a tiny seed, an inquiry that became the germ of this book. Its unfurling would cost me a lot, but it would give me back my life. I wish I could report that this revelation in my therapist's office was enough to break the spell, to unlabor my breathing, to provide relief. Sadly, admitting that I felt pinned down by something didn't disappear the phantom in the way that flipping on the lights when one of my kids sees a strange shadow at bedtime dissipates the threat. But acknowledging the specter's heft and weight did give shape to my investigation. Where did this beast come from? How did it get its power? And why was I so willing to submit? I began to trawl through history to locate the early murmurs of when goodness and acceptability were conjoined for women. And I revisited my own childhood to trace when this programming had first caught me in its maw. I've always liked asking questions. I was a precocious and curious child probably a little annoying in my insistence to understand why, why, why. Fortunately for me, my mother used the library as a babysitter. I always had my face in a book. I looked for answers in novels, history, science, anywhere they might be hiding. And on the long drive to and from town every day, we lived in the woods up a valley outside of Missoula, Montana, My parents played NPRs, all things considered. So I listened as masterful radio journalists like Cokie Roberts, Nina Totenberg, and Susan Stamberg used their questions to make the world more comprehensible. Now I realized I was trying to impose logic on a society that felt chaotic to me. I could sense an underlying structure, a code of behavior, a way life is supposed to be done. I needed to discern this map's contours, the boundaries of acceptance, belonging, and goodness, so I could pick the right path, one that might ensure my own safety, success, and survival. When I became an adult, I took jobs writing and editing, positions where I was paid to pursue my interests, to parse how systems work and why we do what we do. I've interviewed hundreds of deep thinkers and cultural influencers, doctors, scientists, theologians, therapists, Activists, politicians, historians, healers, actors, poets, and journalists about what it means to be human. In the past decade, I've spoken to Brian Stevenson, the death row defense attorney who argues that we are better than the worst thing we've done, that no one deserves to be someone else's executioner. I've spent time with Laura Lynn Jackson a famous psychic medium whose ability to channel the dead suggests we are part of a much larger energetic story, that we don't vanish but endure, that we are here in earth school to learn, evolve, and grow. I've chatted with legendary historian Mary Beard about the silencing of women in literature throughout history, physician Gabor Mate about how intergenerational trauma drives addiction, U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, On the Epidemic of Loneliness. Historian Isabel Wilkerson about our unseen but pervasive racial caste system. Marriage therapists John and Julie Gottman about why some couples are destined to divorce. And many, many more authors, philosophers, artists, and academics. If someone can offer an insight or clue into the human condition, I'll collect it, add it to my web. As I've reflected on these conversations, I've come to realize that on some level, everyone is saying the same thing. We all struggle to be known, to express the truest, most tender parts of ourselves, to feel safe enough to bring our gifts to bear. We wonder, who am I? What do I want and need? How do I find my purpose and serve? Our greatest imperatives are to belong, to love and be loved in return. Yet life gets in the way. Sometimes interference comes from tangible constraints that are outside our control. Traumatic childhoods, systemic injustice, natural disasters. But more frequently, the barriers that keep us from full expression of our potential are intangible. These are whisperings of self-doubt, limiting beliefs, or social constructs of roles and responsibilities. What's appropriate for each of us to want— and to do. These gossamer threads tie us up or pull us along like marionettes. They are the long tales of cultural programming, a legacy that clings to us as we move throughout the world. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at elisepodcast.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack newsletter. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive on Sundays, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen. Meanwhile, if you haven't already, please pre-order my book coming May 23rd. It's called On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, and it's an exploration of the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available for now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valera Duval for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.